everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Bowling, and with me as always is Brandon Odo. You. Before we get started, we just want to take a second to remind you of the new Patreon opportunity that you guys have. If you would like to support the show and kind of join us on this podcasting journey, really whatever you want to kick in at this point um, is is great um, and super appreciated. Um, on the Patreon site, you'll find a community that we're trying to build with opportunities to discuss the episodes or whatever. Uh, you can ask us questions, maybe questions that are not even related to episodes or even medicine. Maybe you just want to know, like, why did you, why do you do what you do? Uh, how do you, how do you prepare for boards? How do you, what's the best way to do X? Um, we're open to any of that. Also, we hope to have coming up soon, you know, some special bonus material. Um, all that's still kind of in development though, but, but uh, come over and uh, join us check it out and uh, be part of the community. Yeah, I like how you describe it as an opportunity, like it's a, a job for people. Obviously, it's uh, mainly an opportunity for us. Uh, like we talked about last time, this is kind of a way to, we're gonna, for as much as possible, keep all the same content on on this you know free feed, but um, it's a way for you guys to support it so that hopefully it continues to be available as long as possible. But we are looking for ways to uh, give back a little bit to people who do support with some maybe additional content and some, a little bit of a community. Um, so all that stuff is kind of evolving, but whatever you can. And then remember also the, um, the, the merch shop, if you want to buy a mug or a shirt or something, uh, and we're working on some, some fun new products over there as well. I think everyone's been happy so far with the, uh, the, um, the goods. Although again, you don't, you don't need those either, but we really appreciate the support so far. Yeah, we do. Um, and if you want to know more, um, patreon.com slash ICU scenarios is the Patreon. Or of course you can always go to ICU scenarios.com where you'll find links for the merch store as well as Patreon. Yes. All right. Let's get into today's topic then. It's a lightning round. So it's just me and Brandon, and we're going to talk about drug choices. So what do you use and why do you use them in different scenarios? Yeah. So for those who think we never listened to you, this was uh, suggested or requested by a listener. Um, obviously, many of the decisions we make for drugs in the clinical setting are determined by any number of influences. But I think it's also, we have to accept and admit that a lot of time when you choose something, it is not for any grand reasons. It's just kind of your go-to. It's your default for that particular application. Um, as we've said before, there's plenty of hard decisions to make in medicine, so you might as well keep the, the easy ones easy. You know, if, if not much thought is required, then just don't give it much thought. So I thought we'd just rattle through, you know, for various common applications, what are the things we like to use? And a lot of this is habit. Um, it's what you were trained on, what you're used to, what you just prefer for whatever reason. And a lot of it is um, local institution and culture. What does your unit or hospital tend to use? And that could even be a policy but often it's also just habit. It's what people tend to do there. Yeah, I have students and uh, fellows and you know folks all the time will ask me like, why do you do this instead of that? And you know, I'd love to say that I have some great evidence-based reason and studies to cite, but more often than not, a lot of it is just 
I just prefer it. Um, I'm more comfortable with it because I use it more often. Uh, I just feel like it works better. Yeah, and it's not that there are not uh, pros and cons to different approaches to things. There are, and you could probably list them out. Uh, but at the end of the day, for a routine situation, routine patient, often they don't stack up to a clear decision. You know, you could argue for one thing or another, understanding the pros and cons. Um, so often the pro is just you kind of stick with the one you're most used to. Accepting, of course, that there are going to be cases where you should go another way. And that's why there are other options. But Yeah, and I want to I wanna underscore here, too, something that I think was sort of eye-opening to me when I was a novice at this is that there are a lot of right ways to do things in medicine. Um, you're going to hear stuff on podcasts and you're going to read stuff on social media and even in textbooks that make it sound like everything is black and white. And in fact, there's a lot of gray. Um, there's a lot of right ways to do things. And so, yeah, like Brandon said, we're not talking about, I like this drug. And so that's all I'm ever going to use. Damn it. You know, um, it's because that there are two or three equally good choices. Why do you choose one over the other? For various reasons, right? Yeah. I mean, in medicine and f frankly, in life these days, I, I actually immediately become distrustful of anyone who is is too sure that their approach to anything is is right. Nothing is that clear cut. <laughs> the person who it kind of accepts that there's vagueness and uncertainty and just says, you know, this is how I like to go, but you can go other ways. That's the person that I can kind of understand and work with. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you just need to look back at, at even just the last couple of decades of medical history. For those of us who have been in this game long enough, you will see we absolutely know that this drug kills people. Go to, we absolutely know that this is the go to drug. You know, norepinephrine is a great example. When I first started in this, it was known as leave them dead, you know, leave a fed. And now it is everybody's go to presser of choice. But 20 years ago, we were certain that norepinephrine would kill you. Yeah, the and person so, yeah, who I is just so, so certain that any, any answer is the right answer is a, is a person whose entire epistemology I just I don't fully understand. But maybe yeah. that's too big of an outlook. Anyway, let's start with some easy ones. All right, um, stress ulcer prophylaxis. You got a patient who you think has some risk of, of stress ulcers, and we can get into who that is, but um, you want to put them on something. Um, what is your go-to? Famotidine. Okay. To start. Yeah. Unless there's some reason not to, or, or unless they take a PPI at home, or they have a specific indication for a PPI. Right. I think most places are either an H2 blocker or a PPI. Uh, I agree if for H2 blocker, probably famotidine. For a PPI, it seems like it's usually... Um, pantoprazole, you could do IV or yeah. PO. I've gone back and forth. I've been places where they, they go H2, I've been places where they go PPI. I I don't really care for the routine person. For someone who I really think is high risk, um, or they actually have had GI bleeding or something, I'll go PPI. Um, I do think it's a little more potent, and that's from what I can recall the data. That doesn't mean a better outcome, and actually it's kind of unclear on whether any of this affects outcomes, but it seems like it suppresses acid production and stuff more. Um, I, th you know, I think H2 blockers are probably uh, a whisker safer, <laughs> but um, I don't really care, I guess. is <laughs> Whatever yeah, I was people say, tend to do locally. So this is not a hill I'm prepared to die on or even really fight hard on. Um, it, it, you know, I have a lot of our surgeons just want PPIs on everybody, and I go, okay. That's fine, right? I'm not going to fight you on it. 
Um, for me personally, if I'm the one writing the order um, and nobody has any other opinions and there's no real reason to use a PPI, I'm going to start with famotidine. But I don't really care enough to make it a, an issue. Yeah. Okay. Um, paired along with that, we have to ask about DVT uh, prophylaxis. And this is probably uh, maybe a little more clinically relevant. People certainly do get DVTs and this does matter. Um, so routine patient in the ICU, in the hospital, maybe on the ventilator, what are you using? Um, we tend to just use sub-Q heparin. Um, certain of our services, the surgery services, um, will like low molecular weight, anoxaparin. Um, but we tend to, in the neuro ICU, we do usually just sub-Q heparin. And in the surgical ICU, it's almost always sub-Q heparin. Okay. I usually start low molecular weight as a routine thing. That's what I've done almost everywhere with the exception of when I was uh, training, they tend to use heparin. And I think that was solely because of cost. Um, and I actually, I don't really know of a, another reason to use regular heparin, except that is a little shorter acting. So if for some reason you wanted to stop it or maybe do a procedure or something, something like a, an LP maybe where you were worried about, you know, non-compressible bleeding, um, but I do think, you know, low molecular weight is, um, you know, it's fewer pokes. Usually it's once a day, maybe twice in some cases. Um, it's probably a little more effective. I mean, again, these are things that don't necessarily affect patient outcomes. But do you guys have a reason for that or it's just what you tend to do? For the heparin? Yeah. No, not that I can figure out. I keep thinking there is, right? And I keep asking people, um, and nobody can really articulate why we do heparin versus low molecular weight. Um, you know, at, at times in my career, I've thought it was related to patient specific reasons like, you know, renal function or, um, you know, other meds they're on. Uh, I've not really been able to find anything to justify that. Um, I've sort of wondered if maybe it's just service dependent because, like I said, the neuro guys tend to all. Um, be okay with sub-Q heparin. Uh, the only time I really ever see low molecular weight is certain surgery services, um, and, it, and it does seem to be a little more dependent on the surgery service rather than the patient. So uh, I don't know if it's just, you know, the ENT guys happen to like anoxaparin and the colorectal yeah. guys prefer sub-Q heparin. I don't know. I think a lot of it probably goes to what you're used to, what you were trained with, et cetera. Yeah. And I'll definitely have a low threshold for maybe switching to regular heparin if, um, like, if renal function is poor. This is actually one of those things where, in theory, you you could still use it in someone with bad kidneys um, with the right modifications. But like I think some other drugs, often we just kind of get off it because we don't want to have to bother with all that stuff. We just go with something that doesn't have a lot of renal um, modifications. But yeah. Okay. What about IV fluids? Um, this is a hot button issue in critical care. Who needs fluids? How much? But if you're going to give somebody, let's say, not a bolus, but a, a drip, you want to park someone on some fluids. And I guess if it depends on the reason for that, uh, you can tell me how it differs. But what's kind of your go-to, quote, maintenance fluid? Uh, my go-to maintenance fluid is nothing, really. Sure. Um, I actually had one of the surgeons tell me the other day, I know you guys don't like maintenance fluids, but, um, you know, and I sort of... I used to be a fine maintenance fluids are great, right? LR at a hundred is fine. Um, and Matt Shuba actually kind of got me more away from that. 
And just this idea that we probably flood people with fluid too much. Um, and so I tend to be more of a bolus guy. I will not fight someone on in maintenance fluid if they have a good rationale for it. But usually that rationale needs to be some legit reason. So for example, we all our subarachnoid hemorrhages in the neuro ICU are on maintenance fluid, the end, even if they're eating, right? Um, and that all goes back to this idea of keeping everything hydrated and not letting them get volume depleted because it increases the risk of vasospasm. Um, but even, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, I had a patient who's a subarachnoid, so he's on a little bit of maintenance fluid. And a little bit, I mean, like, we'll do normal saline at 25 an hour sometimes, you know, just something. And uh, the, he had previous kidney problems, so renal's on, and they wanted to stop all his fluids. And neurosurgery said, you can't stop his fluids, he's a subarachnoid. And the renal fellow is asking me, like, well, I don't understand, why are they so worked up? And I said, well, they want him to make sure he's hydrated. And he's like, can he drink water? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess he, I guess he can, but that's just not how we do it. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so what about let me so um say you have a patient who has they came to the hospital looking like dehydrated and malnourished or something or they've been there a while not able to take BO. They still can't take any enteral nutrition and it's going to be a while until they can. You put them on some kind of fluid. Yeah. Yeah, if they absolutely can't, we you know, um you know, the big colorectal surgery folks who have just gut disruption and can't take anything or, or won't absorb, absorb anything PO. Um, yeah, I'll put them on something. And, and then usually it's probably something like D5LR. Um, okay. So something with a little bit of potassium, but a little bit of sugar with some and, glucose. And um, right. I typically prefer LR to normal saline, except in the neuro ICU where everybody gets normal saline because we love salt there. Mm. Um, but yeah, and, and we hate dextrose in the neuro ICU. So, um, but yeah, usually if there's not any contraindication, um, I'd rather them get their nutrition and their fluid through their gut. So I'm a real big proponent of early Dobhoff placement in people who have intact guts, even if they can't swallow. Yeah. No, yeah, I agree. I, I think the majority of the time, maintenance fluid is just a concept we don't really need. Um, so many of our patients are, have plenty of fluid on board anyway. And even if, they do occasionally need some more, just doing it in more of a, a bolus fashion. Even if you end up in the same place, it has, has less risk of running away. Um, if I, I'm going to put something on, I guess I don't feel that strongly about it. If I think they have some need for intravascular volume, like they've been a, you know, kind of borderline shocky or something, then something isotonic, and usually I would do LR, Sometimes I'll try to get clever and you know, say, oh, well, their sodium is low or something. I'll do normal saline. And if it really is truly just for hydration, um, then maybe something yeah, like D5, um, D5W. I don't do a lot of halves, although I, I guess I see the argument. Um, I let, if, I, if I was, I would like something like balance, like a half LR or something. And a lot of places don't have those flavors. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I agree. Not a lot of people need it. And when you can use the gut, I just like to go to the gut. The, the window between nothing and, you know, enteral nutrition or even IV nutrition like TPN, uh, where you don't, you don't need that much, but you need more than, than nothing where you just give them a little bit of fluid is there is a window there, but it's not a very big one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the two, the two big 
patient populations that I tend to use maintenance fluid in, the subarachnoids, right? And that's, like I said, just because neurosurgery... Thin their blood out, yeah. The thin things. Uh, and then esophagectomies. So in the surgical ICU, esophagectomies, they get brand new J-tubes. We're very protective of those for the first couple of days. They don't get used. The end. They get an NG tube that's only to drain. So those guys get usually something like LR at 100 or LR at 125, um, for a day or two, and then we'll cut it down as we start to get to the point where we can start using their J-tube. Um, their gut works fine. We just can't get to it for a while. Yeah. So, Yeah. And, I mean, it's it's easy to start thinking things like, well, everyone needs a little bit of fluid to be alive. But if you really look at it, you say they're getting a lot of fluid. All these other drugs yeah. and electrolytes and stuff you're giving them, a lot of them already have a lot of fluid just soaked in the inner system and stuff from when they're initially resuscitated. Um, and, frankly, you know, physiologically, not everyone is getting a continuous supply of fluid anyway. I mean, you are not right. sitting on a drip between meals overnight. You're intermittently getting fluid from, you know, your, your dinner or a glass of water or something. And anyway, that's sort of a whole nother story. But yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the flip side, we should ask, what about diuresis? So you think someone has too much fluid, you want to get some off. Uh, what's your go-to? Um, my, I start with furosemide. Um, if there's not any reason not to, um, so that's usually what I would do is start there. Yeah. IV. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, and that's I don't know that well. there's a huge benefit in IV versus PO, but I just tend to do IV to start. Right. And I do it in, de- what's the best way to say this? Like determined bolostosis. So I will give a bolus and then I'll decide when I want to give another bolus rather than saying I want to give, you know, 20 Q6 for two days or whatever. Yeah, like you watch their urine output and see yeah. where they're landing. Yeah. I um I like to do that. I I sometimes it depends on how much uh, involvement I or someone else will have. Like if someone's going to be hovering in that patient twenty four hours and they can kind of rebolse them when their urine tapers off and stuff, that's fine. But you know if there there's like not a lot of night coverage or you know there's nobody around or something, then sometimes a scheduled dose makes sense. And you know maybe someone could still just look out and make sure it's not you know way too much or, or too little or something. But do you ever go yeah. to a different loop diuretic? Well, I was, I was going to say, I will schedule these once we sort of establish what they need, right? So if I'm if I'm taking care of somebody and I'm giving you 40 of Lasix twice a day and every, or, or, or even once a day, right? Every day I come in, I look at you and you're a little overloaded. I'm going to give you a little diuresis and it fixes you, makes you negative. Uh, but then by the next morning you need diuresis again. Then I will just schedule sort of a daily dose of furosemide for a few days and kind of watch things. Um, but you, it's sort of the way I am with blood pressure management, right? When people first come in, I am all about IV PRNs. Once you've sort of established that you need something continuous, then we can start talking about PO. Um, so I'm the same way with, with diuretics. Um, now you said, do I ever go to another loop? Yeah. Bumetidine, um, is the other one that I would go to BMX. Um, I don't have a good reason for why to do it or why not to do it. Um, and usually honestly, it's because someone else has started them on it and I'll just go, okay, well that's what we've been using. Yeah. Um, People have these stories that it's, uh, it's better when your protein is low or better if you have gut edema and I'm not, I don't necessarily disagree with any of that, but it's never really sold me on it enough that I'll be like, you know what, maybe, well, maybe once in a while I'll try it, but yeah, usually it's somebody else's bright idea. Uh, Yeah. I have a friend who's in nephrology and you know, nephrology, they love these huge doses of diuretics that sometimes 
folks get nervous about. And they'll say things like, you know, if you're uncomfortable with 100 of Lasix, then we'll just give eight of Bumex. Um, you know, because it's the equivalent, but it sounds a lot better. It's a smaller number, right? Right. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little more comfortable with furosemide. I think there's a little more literature, so it's just a little easier for me to, to work with. I agree. I start with kind of a test approach, see how they respond, and then adjust from there. So if I make sense to go to a drip, or if I if I want to add on a thiazide sometimes, if it's going to be a really big diuresis, or if they're having a hard time responding, or sometimes I'll throw in some acetazolamide if they're putting out a ton, getting uh, mm -hmm. a little alkalotic or, or things like that. So, Okay. Um, you mentioned hypertension. So... ICU patient, no specific considerations, but their blood pressure is getting high, high enough that it's annoying you or annoying the nurse or, or something. You just want to give them something to bring it down. What's your go-to drug? You said IV, right? Yeah. So I, my, I, my, I have two IV PRNs that I start with, um, labetalol and hydralazine. Um, I like them. Honestly, I think labetalol works much better. Hydralazine, I'm not super impressed with as a drug. I usually just order it as an alternative in case we have, you know, a little bit of bradycardia. Um, I've noticed more and more nurses are afraid to give beta blockers when patients are even approaching bradycardia. I'll have I'll have nurses call and say, "His heart rate's been in the low 60s. Do you want me to give this beta blocker?" Yeah, I think that's perfectly fine. But some people get nervous about it. So I offer hydralazine as a alternative. Also, usually, so I will usually write 10 to 20 milligrams of each. That's the other thing I like about them is they're the exact same dose. Um, so it's one less thing for my brain to remember. 10 to 20, um, usually Q1. And so then you have, I gave 20 of labetalol and it didn't get him into goal range. I'll give some hydralazine and see if that helps. Um, sure. And then if you're giving it every hour, then we'll go to a drip. Yeah, I I also use one of those too. I used to do more hydralazine because it just seemed like kind of a, a more simple, pure drug. A lot of people really don't like hydralazine. They, they think it's mm -hmm. very unpredictable. Um, you know, it doesn't work or can really tank people. It can accumulate and people with renal issues and stuff. It um, So I'll, I will still use it, but more of a, a fallback if I really can't use labetalol. Uh, labetalol, I'll, I agree, somewhere between 10 and 20. And if I really need to, I'll, I'll go quite frequently, like maybe even 15, every 15 minutes at first uh, as a way to kind of load someone and bring them down. And then if I've given it a, a few times, then I'll, I'll often just turn to something like a drip, like nicardipine. It's a, it is, I think, a kind of straightforward drug. It, you know, it will lower their heart rate. It will lower their blood pressure somewhat, but it doesn't really have a lot of other weird pharmacokinetics or anything. Obviously, it's, it, you know, it's a sympatholytic. So if that's not the driver of the hypertension, it may not work well. But you can, you know, you try it and see. I, um, sometimes it definitely doesn't do much. <laughs> they do really just yeah. need like vasodilation. But it's reasonable to try. I do think this is kind of like the uh, nutrition thing. The, the window between asymptomatic hypertension that I don't care about and like real, a real problem that I need to lower now probably with something like a drip is not that big. So the pa patients where I, I really want to treat it, but I don't care enough to do something else. 
Um, they're not probably not as many as I thought. It, a lot of the time, like we were saying, this is just the number's high enough that it's a nuisance and someone is going to make me treat it, but I don't care all that much more. I mean, honestly, a lot of routine ICU patients, I'm happy with them to go, you know, you know, as high as maybe 180 systolic and probably even higher would, would be fine. Um, a lot of places like to see it under 160 or even lower, but I don't think anyone is being harmed without some other disease process because of just random hypertension in the ICU. Yeah, I think, unless, like you said, unless there's a specific reason not to, and most of the, my patients there is, right? So most of my neuro patients have very specific reasons that we yeah. want. Neuro, vascular, control. sure. The vascular surgery patients, right? The triple A's and the type B dissections and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, if you're just talking about like a general garden variety post-op patient um, who, yeah, we just don't want them bananas hypertension, uh, hypertensive. I think the other thing to consider is what's their baseline like, right? If there's somebody who lives super hypertensive and there's not a real reason that they need to be super tightly controlled, then I'm, I'll let them go a little higher. I'll, 180, 200, um, you know. I tell you, my while we're talking on the subject, my pet peeve drug that is not a good antihypertensive that I see used all too often is propofol. Um, propofol is not an antihypertensive; it's a sedative. Well, it is, and, but uh, <laughs> right. <you're... laughs> but but I I run into that a lot. I'll go by and be like, "Why is this patient on max dose propofol?" Well, because their blood pressure goes up. Well, then let's do something about their blood pressure, but they don't need to be deep sedated. Right. Unless you think the blood, blood pressure, pressure is a marker for, you know, anxiety or something like that. But, right. Okay. So what but about, yeah, if, they're um, not, if they're not losing their mind in the bed, fighting the vent, then they don't need to be on max right. propofol just because their numbers are high. So while we're talking about beta blockers and things, what about, um, heart rates? So say somebody has like a rapid AFib and you just, you just want to slow them down and rate control them. What, what, what do you turn to first? Metoprolol. IV? Yeah. Like five. Five IV usually yeah. to start. Sometimes I'll go two and a half if people are really like tenuous on their blood pressure. But in my experience, five is usually safe with everybody. Um, and so, you, will you repeat if you're not getting enough juice? Yeah. Out? So if it's somebody, I get a call that, hey, they just flipped into AFib and their rate's in the 140s or whatever, we'll do five, usually Q5 minutes times three. And if I don't have good control at that point, we're probably looking at something else, but yeah, it, w that would be what something like maybe an amiodarone drip. Yeah. I mean, it depends. So if you're, if it's an, if it's a new AFib that somebody doesn't have a history of it and just went into it, then yeah, amiodarone, usually bolus and drips. If it's somebody who's had longstanding AFib and I'm just trying to rate control them, then I usually don't want to do amiodarone. Um, I think the odds of converting someone who has a long-standing AFib are not high, um, but they're not zero. And especially if it's not like somebody who's a persistent long-standing AFib, but maybe just has an unknown amount of AFib, right? They came in in AFib. Well, I don't know what their history is. I don't necessarily want to put them on amiodarone for the risk of converting them um, when I don't know what's going on in their left atrium. Sure. Yeah, I um, it's funny. I think this differs so much between other settings like outpatient or, or even in the ER compared to the ICU. Uh, I agree. I'll start with metoprolol. I think it's the most hemodynamically stable kind of push dose drug. 
Um, and it tends to work. I mean, a lot of RA fib is secondary to other stressors. So mm-hmm. using a sympatholytic makes sense. And, you know, I would always worry about things like hypotension. They love diltiazem in the ER because it, it works well, but it just, it, it is not as stable, especially if you don't know how somebody's heart is doing or if they have other risks for hypotension. Um, and again, it's kind of not as targeted. So I, I'll actually quite rarely use that unless it is truly a cardiac patient. Like that is their primary issue. Um, and yeah, often I'll go to amio. I don't. I guess I don't give as much thought to the possibility of of converting people in this sort of setting. I just, I just don't know how to operationalize that. People are going to convert or or not. And if they're going to convert, like you know, as they get a, a little bit more stable, or I mean, any any drug can facilitate that, even a beta blocker or anything else. And it yeah. also could just happen on its own. Uh, whereas. I guess if I specifically want to convert somebody that may affect how we're doing, like if they're really unstable, I think they really need an atrial kick or something. But, um, I mean, a lot of the time, like, like we're saying, it really is just a, a prodrome of their other kind of illnesses. And it's more just what's the best way to settle them out and, and get them stable. And amio is a pretty benign drug in the acute setting. You know, it's pretty safe by and large, not a good outpatient drug in, for many of these patients, but the, you know, they're often not left on it. It's just to stabilize them. Yeah. So now what's your, how do you do amio? I, I use the same kind of protocol that I've seen in most places. You, you bolus 150 over 10 minutes and you put them on a 24 hour drip, which starts out with, what is it? Eight hours of one milligram per kilo per hour and then down to 0.5. I think that's right. Um, yeah. And then you see where you're at and you either, prolong the drip if you really just don't know what to do or you switch them to PO and maybe you want to complete a load or you get them off it, which is probably the most common thing if this kind of immediate issue has settled out or, or switch them to something else, maintenance PO, like a beta blocker. But I, um, some percentage of the time, you know, I'll plan to leave them on amio, but again, I don't really love that. And I do think that the longer you leave them on in this setting, the more likely someone else will continue it. Um, even if it's not the best long-term drug for them, but. Yeah, and I think you're right. Most of the time, people who we encounter in the ICU who are in AFib, but they don't have an arrhythmia problem, right? They have a something else problem Critical that's illness causing problem. heart. To, <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. And so, yeah, they don't need to be on PO amio for an extended period of time. Usually, like you said, at 24 hours of the drip, maybe we'll extend it is sufficient. Do you rebolus? Yeah, if if that's the strategy, and then I, I'm not getting enough rate control, I'll rebolus until I, you know lose my interest or whatever. So, a, you know, a couple times, three times. I don't know that I've gone more than three. I mean, you, you could be maybe in eight hours or something. But generally, as you, if you get reasonable initial control over time on the drip, they, it only gets better. And then, you know, yeah. nine hours later, their heart rate is 80, or they go and convert. Or if you really are dying to do something like cardiovert them electrically, uh, the you know, the best way is to kind of load up your anyurhythmics ahead of time. I mean, it never works otherwise, but, you know, you get them on their amio or something, and then later you try it, then maybe now it'll work. Yeah. What about antibiotics? This is a big topic, of course, but I think the most common, <laughs> you almost might say the most common antibiotic use in our setting might be Somebody comes in or newly looks septic in the ICU, you want to give them an empiric broad regimen while you culture them and look for sources and uh, organisms and stuff. What is your broad cover everything antibiotic regimen? 
Uh, it's usually vancomycin and piptazo. Okay. To start. So vanc for your MRSA and then piperacillin tazobactam for everything else. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's common. I think the big yeah. variable is do you go piptazo, which is zosin here, or, or cefepime? A lot of yeah, people, I was going to say, yeah. we will sometimes do cefepime, uh, and usually with cefepime, if we're going real broad spectrum, we'll pair it with metronidazole um, to get a little bit of, you know, antipsychotic and uh, anaerobic coverage. But right, yeah, I mean the the main difference here is that cefepime doesn't intrinsically have really anaerobic coverage, so you can decide if this patient in front of you has risk for infection from an anaerobic organism, which is not the most common thing, but in specific situations. But yeah, I think a lot of places it's they have one kind of go-to, uh, and there are specific considerations about renal function and coverage and stuff like that. But I mean, again, you could always add metronidazole to your cefepime. It's a little less elegant because now you have three drugs, but um, maybe it's also easier to discontinue. Uh, I really think that is very institutional and sometimes it depends on things like cost. But, um, yeah, I think it depends on your setting too. Like, what are you trying to treat? You know, if I'm trying to treat CNS infection, or potential CNS infection in the neuro ICU, um, I'm more likely to go to cefepime. Yeah, than a little bit better penetration. Better yeah. penetration. Um, you know, things like linazolid uh, versus daptomycin. If I'm going for a, like a VRE pneumonia, uh, I'm going to go with linazolid because uh, you're going to get yeah. better lung. And you can consider your local but, antibiograms and yeah. the patient's own antibiotic history and stuff, but that's starting to get a little bit fancier. But. Yeah. Okay. So what's your uh, so let's take it as ne next step further. You have a patient who's on vancomycin, and they appear to be in septic shock. You don't have a good source. You're still in the early stages. They're not getting better. Do you add another agent? Oh boy. And if so, what is it? Yeah. I mean, this I think is starting to get out of the room. Or, or do you escalate? Right. Do you change yeah, from yeah. zosin to something else? I don't, I don't know if I have a, a knee-jerk response to that because I think that that's a situation that really um, warrants taking a moment of thoughtful consideration and turning to, like, type 2 thinking. It's, uh, you know, the reasons that someone might not be getting better on empiric antibiotics are widespread, and the not having the right antibiotics is not even necessarily the most common one. You know, do you have good source control? Is this not even infectious? Uh, so on and so forth. Um, yes, I might add something. If I wasn't covering anaerobes, I might add that. Um, if I was already kind of handling all that, then I might go to something that covers for ESBLs. So probably like a carbapenem, something like mirapenem instead of whatever we had them on, uh, plus immersive coverage and things. Sometimes maybe covering for, for fungus, some kind of antifungal, not very often. You know, we talked about this some, we talked about aspergillosis, but, um, and then, uh, I mean, it would be rare for me to start adding other things empirically to get real crazy because then you really have to know what it is you're treating. But yeah, I'd almost be more likely to do something else than <laughs> maybe okay. even to stop antibiotics. Say so this is not the not the problem. Oh yeah, okay. So we, let's talk about that. So when do you when do you stop? Right, you start empiric antibiotics, start vancomycin on somebody. When do you stop? Oh boy, um, do you get we found the negative cultures, or do you stop before then? Um, you know, so many times we treat sepsis, which is clearly sepsis, but we never get a successful culture just because cultures are, are right. not always successful. I, I, I mean, I think you have to decide, do you think this was infection or not? So y you found the problem and now you know what disease you're treating because those have s 
relatively well-defined disease courses in the ID world, even if some of them are made up. Um, so, you know, it's pneumonia and we know how long to treat that or whatever. Or you never found something and then you have to decide how suspicious was this for sepsis versus just this was a generally unstable patient. So we cover with antibiotics because that's something we could do. Um, but if suspicion was pretty low, I mean, most people will end up with a day or two. I think going beyond maybe three days, if you didn't have some reasonable suspicion that there was infection here. And you could be guided by their, their course and what else you found and, you know, fevers and white counts and things. Sometimes I find procalcitonins are useful. Um, but, you know, after a, a good day or two, because then you should have a, a clear sense for what's going on with them, I try to start pulling stuff off. I am more of a antibiotic conservative type than, than some, Everyone's got their own risk tolerance, but yeah, I think I'll start peeling stuff back stepwise too. So you know, if we everybody gets MRSA swabs, right? Uh, you got no MRSA coming up, then get rid of your okay. we'll or whatever. Pull the yeah. off. Um, you know, and sort of we'll we'll say things like, you know, all right, well, how about we stop Vank today, and if everything looks good tomorrow, we'll stop the Zosin. Um, or sometimes we'll just say, I don't nothing's growing, but this dude's really sick and he's getting better. So let's just give him seven days of Zosin and call it a day, you know? Um, yeah. I get that, that mindset. And I think it is right sometimes, but I do think there, there's a slippery slope there. Cause I mean, yes, treat broadly initially, someone is sick, you don't know what's going on, but that's only kind of right and acceptable if you're willing to get rid of it when when yeah. things kind of settle out. And if if the mindset becomes like, well, we've been on it, we might as well continue it, then that's how you end up with the one day of empiric antibiotics that stretches out into two weeks or something. Because who's to say that tomorrow will be any different than today? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think if I'm going to say, let's just continue it with no good evidence, then I set a definitive course, right? So they've been on for five days, um we'll just continue it for seven days and then we'll stop. We're done at that point, unless something grows or they get worse or whatever, but that's that. Um, if I'm to a point where I go, I don't even know that they were ever infected. Well then let's just stop today and see what happens. Yeah. And you still end up with this gray area sometimes, you know, you said mm -hmm. seven days, it's the seventh day and eh, their white count is up like a point today. And then you're like, wow, am I willing to stop this? And you just end up with this inertia sometimes, but yeah. it is hard because this is one of the things we can do that actually does help people. Um, but you see, you end up with people on an antibiotics for like four weeks and there's still something going on until someone finally realized they had like lymphoma or something. I mean, it's even, it's yeah. not always a safe thing to just treat them with antibiotics, even if beyond like stewardship considerations, sometimes it means you're not diagnosing something else. Yeah. Well, and I think you made a good point earlier when we talking about like, they're getting worse. Maybe we stop antibiotics, right? I think that's something we can, you can easily run into this trap of they're on antibiotics. They're getting better. Should we continue antibiotics? Is that what's making them better? Or do we stop antibiotics because they're over their infection? Yeah. Right. You can make an argument either way. They're getting worse. Should I stop antibiotics? Cause it's not helping. Should I double down on the antibiotics? Cause it's not enough. Right. So I think when you get into that sort of guessing game, 
you can go either way and you just kind of have to kind of talk yourself into one. Yeah. And I think sometimes just picking a way to go is the answer. And this applies to, I think my general approach in a lot of things, just keeping things the same is often not the right answer. You gotta, you gotta commit either. You need more antibiotics or less antibiotics. (laughs) And yes, sometimes you need the same amount, but if, if things are changing, like the patient's getting worse or better then then maybe not because changing something is likely to get you some kind of answer either way, you know? Yeah. And I think that's, like you said, that's a good, in critical care in general, good strategy, right? Is pick a strategy and stick with your strategy. Give it time to do what it needs to do. Um, I have a cardiac surgeon who talks about NASCAR medicine, step on the gas, step on the brake, step on the gas, step on the brake. Um, And, you know, he's, you know, if you're going to step on the gas, you got to give it a minute to to see if it's going to work. You can't just throw everything at them and then peel it all back and then throw it all at them and peel it all back. Um, so I think, yeah, you got to kind of pick a strategy and let it play out a bit. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk, um, sedation analgesia. You put a patient on the ventilator, you just innovated them. They got induced, the tube went in. Um, what are you going to put them on to keep them comfortable? If anything, but so sedation, pain, both, what are you using? We, we were just talking about this yesterday. Um, you know, I know the PADIS guidelines from SCCM are real big on anagal, anagalos, or however you say it, sedation. Analgo sedation. <laughs> and I feel like my go-to is still to sedate people. And I mean, I guess I am doing that, right? I, but I will put them on a sedative and then give them bolus doses of pain medication rather than what I used to do, which was everybody got propofol and fentanyl, like as a drip. Um, then we had shortages of fentanyl drips, so it became Dilaudid drips. And then it became, well, we can get fentanyl pushes. Okay, great, well, I'd rather do fentanyl pushes. So we'll do fentanyl pushes and propofol as a drip. And then it became Dilaudid drips, Dilaudid pushes, et cetera. And so now I think my general go-to is I have two sed- sedative medications that I like, uh, and that's dexmedetomidine and propofol. I don't know that I have a real strong opinion one way or the other. I think propofol is sort of my go-to in general because I feel like if I'm sedating you, it's because I just intubated you and paralyzed you and you need something to kind of keep you down for a minute. Um, because probably your bolus RSI sedation is going to wear off and you're going to have some paralytics still on board. So I really want you asleep for a while. And so I'm probably going to start propofol if I think your blood pressure will tolerate it. In the neuro ICU, propofol is great because I can turn it off and get a neuro exam within a minute or so. Um, you know, Prestex is also good in that I can leave you on a even pretty decent dose of Prestex and extubate you. So there's pros and cons, and I don't know that I have a real good rationale for one over the other, but I tend to do propofol. Yeah. I, um, you know, we talked to guys like Dale Needham and, you know, the, their default is just you order some like PRN fentanyl pushes and that's it or something. And that's, I, I, I mean, I'm such a believer in these strategies of keeping people awake, but it really is uh, not something you can just adapt on your own. You have to be somewhere where there can be support for that. So mm-hmm. usually it's more realistic to sedate somebody more aggressively up front and then try to just de-escalate it rapidly. So probably the most common thing I'll do, yeah, will be a, a propofol drip. 
but I will consider who the patient is. You know, is this somebody who was really acutely ill? They're really unstable. We need to, we just got the tube in and now we have to do a whole bunch of other things. Um, they need to be like massively transfused. They need a bunch of lines. They have to go for a scan or something. And we just can't have the variable of, of, of them waking up here. Or is this more just like, you know, had a progressive respiratory failure and they just, you know, the time has come. They can't do non-invasive stuff anymore. Um, and yes, they need a tube, but the only thing that's really changing here is the, just the tube being in. There's no reason they have to suddenly enter this world of super medicalization. And then maybe that's a patient where we can go a lot lighter. And also like how kind of strong is this patient? Is there somebody who is a lot of risk if they are getting more agitated or, you know, are they already encephalopathic, frail, whatever, and not likely to need as much help? So maybe in this latter category is more likely to go with dexmedetomidine or, or nothing or, yeah, just kind of as needed pain kind of things. I wish we had a better bolus dose sedative other than benzos. I will sometimes do, you know, haloperidol or something, but... Um, yeah, so if I'm trying to go a little lighter, I think a re very reasonable way is, is dexmedetomidine. It's a little more benign. Um, and then, you know, if you go propofol, then maybe just see if you can get it off them soon. You know, like, oh, they're still paralyzed for sure. I'm Yeah, I'm going to give you a drip here, but once things kind of quiet down and, and that should have worn off, you know, let's circle back in an hour or two and just get them off it. And they wake up and they say, hey, you forgot, but remember, breathing tube, ICU, everything's okay. And, oh, okay. And, you know, go from there. Yeah, I think part of my choices are influenced again by my patient population. You know, most of my folks who are intubated are intubated because we did a big surgery on them, um, and they're going to get extubated pretty quick, or they're intubated because they, you know, had a respiratory failure after their surgery, and it's really more their critical illness than their true lung problem, lung pathology. Or they're in the neuro ICU where there really isn't lung pathology. Their problem is they can't protect their airway. Um, and so, you know, propofol, I think, works real well for all of those people because it's just it's a very short time limited thing. And then, like you said, we're going to wean the propofol off and we're going to get them extubated. We're going to wean the propofol off because we're going to trach them and then they don't need sedation. Um, you know, we're, we trach people super early in the neuro ICU a lot of times. The thing, I, I agree with you, I wish we had a better push dose sedative because the thing about drips in general, you know, drips are great for maintaining a homeostasis type of situation, right? You know, I don't want a lot of fluctuations in blood pressure. Cardine is better than push doses. I don't want a lot of fluctuations in something, you know, that's great. But the, the downside of drips is there's this inertia of them in that, especially with sedatives, right? I put the propofol at 30 and you go in and go, why are they on 30 propofol? I don't know. Yeah. You know, because they were, right? I came in and they were on somebody turned it up a little because they got yeah. restless and it never came down and it just ratchets yeah. up. Um, or I say, well, what, is, what do they do when you turn the sedation off? Nothing really. Yeah. <laughs> well, then why are they on any, right? So it's, it just becomes this this sort of, I just forget about it, right? And I'm sure I did it at the, at, when I was a bedside nurse too, right? So I don't want to. I don't want to sound like I'm coming down on nurses. It's just it's one of those things that when you've got a million things going on in your head, 
it's easy to forget yeah, about it's it. It's a natural phenomenon. That's yeah. One of the ways that I'll try to limit that sometimes, especially, you know, times like night shifts, it's hard. You know, you'd often come in the morning and everything got turned up overnight because it's all of that in spades. Um, sometimes I'll put the drip in, but I'll, I'll limit the dose. I'll cap it, you know, maybe much lower than our kind of routine maximum so that if somebody does crank it up later and I'm not like hovering on them, nagging them about it, at least it won't go higher than some reasonable amount. So based on what I really think this patient ought to need, of course, I could be wrong. Um, you know, I'm going to say, okay, yes, we got to go on a little bit of dexamethasone or something, but it's, it's not going to be more than 0.5 or something. And it's like just for sleep tonight or something like that. Yeah. And then you've kind of, uh, or you could put an end time on it. Uh, that's a little riskier because you don't necessarily know what things will be going on then. But if you really want to make sure something is like held for the morning for an SBT, mm -hmm. the drip time's out. And then, you know, they, they could ask someone to, you know, renew it or something, but at least the default stuff is in there. Yeah. I like, I'm a big fan of stop points like that, right? Saying with any drip, right? When you get to point X, I want you to talk to me. Um, not because I'm not going to go up higher, but because I want to make a conscious decision to go up higher rather than, and again, not that I don't trust your judgment that they need it, but it makes me think about, okay, is there something else we could be doing? Right. I do it with pressers too. You know, if you get to 0.08 of norepi, I want you to call me, um, just because you're going to get busy. I'm going to get busy. And the next thing you know, it's a couple hours later, I come by and they're maxed out on something. Uh, and no, we've never had a conversation about it. Yeah. What if you have somebody who has been on a sedative drip, maybe a opioid drip too, it's been on for ages. You really like, you just are having a hard time getting off of them. Um, we, do you have a strategy for de-escalating them other than just turning everything down and kind of making sure that happens? Not really, to be honest. Um, and this is one of the reasons that I'm not super a big fan of opioid drips anymore. Um, because I feel like getting someone off of propofol or even Prestex is a little bit easier than getting them off of, say, a Dilata drip or even a fentanyl drip, which is a little shorter acting. Um, you know, and I feel like the problem with opioid drips is if I'm trying to wean someone off the ventilator, a lot of Dilaudid is going to inhibit their drive, and that's why they're going to fail pressure support. Right? I can turn the propofol off. Hell, a lot of people can do pro pressure support on propofol, um, but can't do it on a Dilaudid drip. Yeah. Will you go to oral opioids or sedatives? Um, yeah. Now, what I will do, what I do find a lot is we'll, I can get somebody off of propofol, but they're on Presidex. Um, and I will add in uh, guanfacine, oral guanfacine, um, and then wean the Presidex off. Um, sometimes quetiapine, Seroquel um, as well. But um, I feel like guanfacine works really well for that. And I'll start sometimes, depending on how much they need, um, I can do two in the morning and two at night. Um, but we'll, I'd like to go to this differential dosing where I do one in the morning and two at night or none in the morning and one at night. And that gives them a little bit more of a, I'm giving you a little bit more sedation at night. It's not sleep, but I'm letting you be a little more awake during the day. Uh, and I think it helps with delirium too. And then we can usually get the Prestex off. I like that. I haven't used the, the guanfacine much, I'll, but I'll use like catiapine for that. Um, yeah, like BID and often more so at night uh, or even just at night. 
Um, and, but I'll, and I'll do the same thing with opioids. If they've been on a ton, I'll start usually like, um, like an oxycodone uh, mm. to, in their tube or whatever they can take it. And I mean, if you have somebody who's been on like 200 of fentanyl an hour for like days and weeks and they're on like propofol and dexmedetomine and all that other stuff, you know, throwing in these like oral doses of these things is, it's not like you're barely making a dent. Like I, I wouldn't right. hesitate to do it because you're not probably really increasing them. Even if you're only able to reduce one of those drips by a small amount, the amount that's accumulating over 24 hours is like massive, massive. So if you give them like five milligrams of oxycodone a few times a day, like you're not, yeah. <laughs> that's like a, a drop in the bucket. And I think it, it does sometimes matter. So I don't, I don't feel like I'm adding to their sedation analgesia, which I, I don't want to do. It's just, it's one more way to help get them off some of this stuff. Cause otherwise you could be stuck on these drips forever. Yeah, I don't, I, I, I am a big fan of oxycodone for pain and I will add it PRN, um, even on intubated patients pretty early on, um, because I think, like you said, you get a longer lasting effect. And so, whereas, you know, the nurse is like, I'm having to give fentanyl pushes every hour or a lot of pushes every hour. Great. Well, tell you what, give him some fentanyl, but then chase it with some oxycodone. And then you probably won't have to give fentanyl for the rest of the day. Cause you'll get a couple of hours of effect out of that oxycodone. Yeah. And what, what you get out of, kind of switching to more of a enteral strategy with some of this stuff is also just that if you've gotten to the point where the only reason the patient is on the vent is because of all these drips, you could eventually get them off the drips. And even if they're still on a lot of drug orally, you can be on a lot of drug orally and you can get off the vent yeah. and get out of the ICU and stuff and then gradually taper them off. Whether that means you're on a combination of long and short acting opioids and they can wean them off or, you know, you sometimes will go to from like dexmedetomidine drip to like clonidine, you know, patches or oral or something. Um, there's kind of whole protocols for using that as a weaning strategy if you've built up a dependence. And even if you don't truly have a physiologic dependence, it's it is still essentially a sedative, just one that they can again they can leave on. <laughs> yeah. One thing I think you have to be really careful with with oral agents is that when you've got a patient who's getting better and is getting to the point where they're ready to leave the ICU, you need to get those medicines off or at least have a conversation with the team that's going to be taking over. Because, you know, whereas I, I don't think you're going to find any service who's going to just blindly continue a Dilaudid drip or a Presidex <laughs> drip on the floor, people will continue Seroquel and Guanfacine. And I've seen people go home on these yeah. drugs. And then you get they get to their, they follow up with their, PCP who goes, I don't know, I don't know why you're on Seroquel, but they started it. Must hospital, be a good so I'll reason. Just continue yeah, it, yeah. and pretty soon you've got somebody who's on this drug for forever, right? I mean, that's an exaggeration, but I think it certainly happens. No, you're right. People are better, I think, about the opioids because people are getting yeah. really tight about prescribing. But for some of these other things, yeah, not as much. Yeah, and I think it's because people are more familiar with opioids, but they're less familiar with guanfacine, for example. Yeah, or, um, or I, all sorts of people who I talk to who don't do ICU will say. Guanfacine, you mean like Robitussin? Uh, no, no, not guanfacine. Guanfacine, it's a different drug. They've just never even heard of it. So it's one of those things that does kind of check, continue. So, yeah, no, I agree. The other kind of strategy that occasionally I like, if you have someone who really has a lot of reason to have pain, but that's it, like they should be with it and stuff. And even if they're on the ventilator, if they're if they can be awake and reasonable, you can go to a, a PCA um, mm -hmm. uh, of an opioid and. 
as long as I can push a button and understand it, that can work even in that case. And that's obviously not everybody, but it's a nice way to give potentially a lot of opioid while still having air to control. Same as you would if when they weren't on the ventilator. Because uh, otherwise, again, you're hanging a drip and then that starts to accumulate and they get more sedated and stuff. But Yeah, I, I find that we don't you'll do a lot of PCAs for ventilated patients just because, uh, again, this is probably my environment, right? We don't have a lot of primary lung pathology so most people, if you're on the ventilator, you're probably not able to do a PCA because you're on the ventilator for other reasons. Um, if you're awake and with it and everything else, I could probably get you. You could probably take it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Well, I think that covers a lot of the kind of routine pharmacologic choices we make in an ICU. As we've seen, it, obviously, a lot of it depends on what kind of patients you're treating, what kind of diseases you're treating. And then obviously, any go-to only applies some percent of the time. Sometimes you do have to actually use your brain. But, you know, it's good to have something in your pocket for when you don't want to think too hard about things and then kind of evolve from there. Uh, it's going to differ for everybody. And it, even for us, I think it's, we found it changes over time. Uh, and one of the hardest things I think is as you learn new things or science changes to actually change what your, your knee jerk responses are. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about this the other day, right? That there's all sorts of stuff that I probably do and even teach that I really need to sit down and go, I mean, is that really right anymore though? Or is that just because I've been doing this for a number of years and that's the way I've always done it? And you don't want to change your slide, but (laughs) yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And you know, things do change and maybe we'll do this again in a year and see how, how different things are. But yeah. What do you think? Uh, head on over to the Patreon site and, uh, join us, become a patron and join in the discussion. There'll be a discussion thread over there. Let's hear some of your go-to drugs. What did, what do you think? Do are we on the ball here? Or are we way off the mark? Uh, do we need to change some PowerPoint slides? Let us know. All right. See you guys next time. <laughs>